for my homily this Easter Sunday morning, I'd like to share with you um, something that was given to me about five years ago when I was making a retreat. That summer, I had the, I was blessed to have the opportunity to do the 30-day spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. So I was on a 30-day silent retreat. And in the middle of that retreat, as I was reflecting on the stories of the life of Jesus, uh, I believe Mary gifted me with this because I was I spent several holy hours in prayer and I would go back to my room and just furiously write in my journal the stuff that was coming to me in my prayer. Usually I edit things out a lot more. What I'm going to read to you is pretty much what I was scribbling in my journal that whole time. So this is kind of like an episode of The Chosen where it's like the gospel story, but I fill filling in a lot of the blanks. And this is Mary's uh, joyful journey through the Easter Triduum. Okay, so Relax, get as comfortable as you can get in a pew or standing on the back wall, and here we go. The first word is tetelestai. It's Greek word. That's what Jesus says from the cross. It is finished. Okay. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is paid in full. It has reached the end for which it was made. There's nothing else to see here. The blood and water have stopped flowing from Jesus' side. Neither he nor the criminals next to him show any signs of life. The shouts of the soldiers and the jeers of the crowd have fallen silent, knowing that they can have no more effect on their intended target. As they decrease, the passionate sobs of those who love and admire Jesus become hauntingly audible. These sounds had been there the whole time, but they had been drowned out by more hateful voices, to the point that Jesus rarely heard from his loved ones as he died. The soldiers leave their day's work on display for the city beyond the wall to see, and they go to lose themselves in drink or other diversions in an effort to dull the memory of what just happened. The apostles have each found their own private hiding places to mourn. They've been a band of brothers for three years now, but in their darkest hour, they are each alone and inconsolable. Jesus' words, quoting Zechariah at the end of their last supper together, now haunt them. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. The only exception to this is John. He's still at the foot of the cross, next to Mary, surrounded by a small group of anonymous disciples and admirers of Jesus. For a long time, no one speaks. There are no words. They just look at the ground and think and quietly sob. Joseph of Arimathea arrives after some time, carrying a large linen shroud, and sits next to Mary in silence for a bit. He expresses his great sorrow to her for all that has happened, and then he gestures toward a cave in the rock face behind them. He asks for her permission to take down Jesus' body and bury him there. She consents and thanks him for his kindness. As the men set to their task, however, they notice that the Romans have taken all of their tools with them, and they wonder how they will accomplish it. Mary remembers that she has kept a few of her beloved Joseph's tools after he died. They are at her parents' house, which is not very far from here. And so she sends John to fetch them, and they are soon reverently underway. As she hears the familiar clanking of Joseph's tools in this macabre setting, she's grateful that he didn't have to witness this awful spectacle. Joseph might have felt it as his failure to protect Jesus, but she knows that he never failed Jesus or her in anything. And even in death, his tools lovingly remove the nails that caused his son pain and free his body from this instrument of torture. Oh, how wonderful it would be to curl up in Joseph's strong arms right now. She closes her eyes, 
trying to remember that feeling. As the men lower Jesus' body from the cross, Nicodemus arrives with a cart full of myrrh and aloes. His eyes are red from tears shed shed private previously in private, just as his fascinating conversations with Jesus had been. He's still not quite sure what to make of Jesus, but he knows that he had respected him, and he wants to help provide for a proper burial. Once it is lowered from the cross, Mary takes a brief moment to hold her son's body. It feels so foreign to her without the warmth of life or that mystically perceptible divine glow that she knew so well. She had hoped that there would be some sign of life remaining in him, but there is not. He is dead. She strokes his cool, pale cheek and then invites his devoted friends to continue their work of preparing his body for burial. She, she sits down to rest. From her vantage point here atop Calvary, she can see the top of the temple in the distance. Her mind drifts back to another time when she had felt anxious over her son, when he was 12 years old. He had stayed behind there in the temple, and she didn't know where he was for five days. She recalls his enigmatic words back then, which never did make much sense to her. Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Those words now take on a new layer of meaning as they mingle with his words from the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Her mind goes back further to the ominous words of Simeon at his presentation in the temple. This child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted, and you yourself a sword shall pierce so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. When she recalls these words, her heart is pierced anew as she notices a bit of smoke rising from the temple area. Some of the priests who were just complicit in her son's death are burning sacrificial offerings to God. She is struck by the very stark division that exists in her beloved Judaism. As some religious leaders celebrate the death of her son at the temple, others like Nicodemus and Joseph mourn his death with great reverence to him and consolation to her. How do all of these men of wisdom and learning have such drastically different opinions about him? The body of Jesus is now ready for burial. As she watches the attendants wrap his body in the shroud, Mary remembers wrapping her newborn son in swaddling clothes on the night he was born in the city of David's origin, which is not too far from here. The smell of the myrrh they anoint his corpse with reminds her of the wise man Balthazar's gift to her newborn son long ago, and suddenly that takes on new meaning. As Jesus' funeral procession makes its way down the hill toward the tomb, so many events from Jesus' birth and childhood race through Mary's mind. So many mysteries that have puzzled her over the years seem to be strangely richer and more meaningful in the context of this tragedy. As they reach the entrance to the cave where he will be buried, her mind goes back to the cave where she lived in Nazareth, where Gabriel had appeared to her in fiery glory so many years before. As several men noisily wrestle a stone in place to seal the tomb, Gabriel's words sound like thunder in her ears. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of, his, of David his father, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Mary stares at the stone, now sealing the tomb shut. Inaudibly to anyone standing around her, she whispers, Most High, I don't understand your plan at all. I just know that that experience with Gabriel back then felt much more real to me than this does now. And Mary pondered all of these things in her heart. After the burial, John takes Mary back to the place where he is staying. They share a meager supper together. Neither is very hungry. And John prepares a place for Mary to sleep. She almost immediately falls into a deep, sound slumber fueled by loss, mourning, sorrow, and just plain exhaustion. In the morning, she wakes up feeling strangely refreshed and invigorated. The first thought that goes through her mind was not a memory of yesterday's atrocities as she thought it would be. It was the face of Gabriel, again intently proclaiming, Of his kingdom, there will be no end. She talks to John about this at breakfast. He too is in surprisingly good spirits. Similarly, the first thought in his mind that morning had not been the jeers of the crowd, but the forgiving words that Jesus had offered for his attackers. I mean, I've heard him give a hundred sermons on forgiveness, he says, but I could could have never imagined him offering it at a time like that. And following it up with that hope-filled promise to the man he made dying next to him, what was that all about? As they discuss this, it suddenly occurs to John that he hasn't seen any of the other apostles since they all scattered from Gethsemane the night before. They agree that this will be their day's work, to seek out the others, to share their experiences. Peter is the first one they encounter. He has spent the whole night out on the street in an obscure corner just down from from a marketplace. Lost in dark thought all night, he's only slept for maybe an hour. He's curled up on the cobblestones, exhausted. There are chickens in the marketplace, and every time a cock crows, he winces, remembering his betrayal, yet he will not move. He feels like he deserves this. Catching sight of Mary and John walking toward him, he sits up, averts his eyes, and covers his face. I failed him, he reports in a muffled voice. I ran away. John gently replies, we all ran away from him in the garden, Peter, every one of us. That may be so, Peter responds. But but I was the one he called the rock. I was the one who, just a few hours earlier, had said, even if all have their faith in you shaken, mine never will be. And then I fled. And then I lied. Three times. To save my own skin. Denying that I ever even knew him. In the distance, the cock crows again, and Peter rolls his eyes. John starts telling Peter his observations at the foot of the cross, how Jesus had prayed Psalm 22, his conversation with the man dying next to him, and he saves the best part for last. He said, he actually said, Father, forgive them. They they know not what they do. At this, Peter raises his his head and looks at John straight in the eyes, mouth opened in stunned disbelief. He said that then? Peter gasps, I know. John agrees. That's what I thought too. 
At all this talk of forgiveness, Mary steps forward and stoops down in front of Peter. She reaches out her hand and touches his cheek, lifting his eyes to hers. She says, Peter, do you remember that conversation you once had with Jesus about forgiveness? You asked him, how many times must I forgive a brother? And what was his response? Seven times? Peter rolls his eyes and takes the bait. No, I think it was more like 77 times. Mary continues, and have you given him cause to forgive you more than 77 times since you've known him? Well, not that I'm aware of, Peter replies. She playfully slaps his cheek. Good, she says, standing up. Then that means he will most likely forgive you again. Peter looks puzzled. What do you mean he will forgive me again? Mary understands his confusion. To be honest, she replies, I'm not really sure what I mean. I just know that Gabriel's promise keeps sounding in my head, and I inexplicably feel much more hopeful than I expected to today. So come on, get up, you big rock. Help us find the others. They spend the rest of the day tracking down their companions, sharing their stories. In the evening, they gather in the upper room where they'd eaten together a few nights before to try to discern their next steps, but nobody really has any idea what to do. They finish the evening in somber but curiously hopeful prayer, and then they all go their separate ways to get some sleep. John and Mary invite Peter to join them at their place. Once they lie down, Peter instantly falls into a coma-like sleep. He's never been so exhausted. And although he had been asleep for several hours, it felt like he, was, he just blinked his eyes when he felt a woman's hands on his shoulders urgently rousing him from sleep. His bleary eyes opened to see Mary Magdalene standing over him, wild-eyed and perspiring. Peter, she exclaims, get up. They've taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. What are you talking about? Peter asks, still groggy from sleep. He looks across the room and sees John with a look of panic on his face, lacing up his sandals and heading for the door. With a sudden shot of adrenaline, Peter follows suit, with Mary Magdalene following after. Mary, the mother of Jesus, sits upright in her bed, pondering all these things in her heart and a faint smile breaks across her face. As they get to the tomb and see the stone rolled away, Peter is furious. Can't they just let him rest in peace, he shouts. Must they even defile his grave? But when he goes inside, his angrily furrowed brow softens to a look of curious puzzlement. The body is indeed gone, but the burial cloths are all there in front of him. Who in their right mind would unwrap a body to steal it, he wonders. John comes in and looks around as well. Right there, where the shroud is, that's where we laid his body. But why would somebody unwrap it? And why is the cloth that covered his face rolled up over here a few steps closer to the door? I was wondering the same thing, Peter replies. This is just weird, John. I don't know what to make of it. We should tell the others and see what they think. A few hours later, the apostles and Mary are all gathered discussing the evidence they've seen and trying to piece together what happened. Did the Jewish leaders do this? Was it the Romans? Was it something else entirely? As the debate progresses, one by one, their voices fall silent as each one in his own time notices that Mary Magdalene has quietly entered the room. The look on her face is indescribable, sort of a mixture of amazement and enlightenment. And after a few moments of silence, she speaks in a thin voice, barely able to comprehend the words that are coming out of her own mouth. I have seen the Lord, she says. More moments pass in silence. He asked me to tell you. I am going to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. They all look around at each other in bewilderment. No one knows what to do with this information. They invite Mary Magdalene to sit, and they ask her a few more questions, but they still can't wrap their minds around her answers. 
Finally, they agree that to take a little time apart in prayer and reflection, and then meet back in the upper room to discuss their next steps over dinner. That evening, John and Mary joined the others in the upper room, but this time, by this time, all have heard what happened to Judas, and even though many are still bitter about his betrayal, they also pity him for the way that he died. The mood in the room that evening is tentatively positive overall. Most are still unsure what to make of the Magdalene's apparition, but it seems hopeful. A lively discussion takes place over the course of dinner, but it suddenly comes to a halt when Mary, the mother of Jesus, cries out in a gasp of pure delight. They all turn to look at her, but she's not looking at any of them. Her face is shining like the full moon in the night sky. Her look is one of complete ecstasy, and they all turn in unison to look where she is looking, and there he is. Jesus stands before them, in the flesh, looking just as he had the last time they all gathered together with, with him in this room, sort of. Despite his obvious crucifixion wounds, he looks like the healthiest, the most vibrant, the most virile man anyone has ever seen. He is glory incarnate. There's an amused look on his radiant face, like he's been looking forward to seeing this expression on their faces for a while. Peace be with you he says at last. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. He breathes on them, and it feels all at once like warm breeze, sunshine, strength, consolation, like life itself. He speaks again. Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. Everyone is speechless, unable to articulate what they're experiencing. Jesus looks at the leftovers in the dinner table and takes a bit of fish to eat. He's not particularly hungry. In fact, he's gloriously satisfied, but he figures that this will help them to understand that he really is alive. This isn't a ghost. And then he speaks to them at length about how all the things that have happened were foretold in the scriptures. And he finishes his speech. Thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. And I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then as abruptly as he had appeared, he was no longer in front of them, but his mother Mary found that she felt no differently than when he was there. She did not miss him. She did not lament his absence because she wasn't experiencing his absence. Even though she could not now see him with her eyes, he remained somehow present, more present to her, in fact, than when he was living at her house, more present than when she had guided him through childhood, more present than when she first felt him move in her womb. And all at once, all of the things that she had been keeping in her heart since he was a child suddenly burst forth, blossoming into an imperceptible crown of glory to adorn her head. And Mary knew that never again would she be separated from her son for all eternity. He is risen, as he had said, Abba, most high, she whispers, I praise you. 
my friends. He is risen, as he said. He is closer to you than you know. He is healing you. He is bringing you out of your tombs. Hallelujah.